All right, people. Thank you, Olivia, for reading the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at Joshua 5 and 6 today. Uh, so why don't I pray and then we'll get into it. Father God, we don't just want to praise you for this morning. It's always just a pleasure to have your words speak to us and into our lives. And regardless of where we are in our lives right now, where we're sitting right now, we know that your spirit is at work in our lives and takes the word of God and drives it deep into our souls. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would drive it deep into our souls and change us. Give us a confidence in you that it only comes through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, some of you may have known uh, that I've taken up boxing. Uh, if you were in my garage right now, you would see a boxing bag right there. You'd see a bunch of gloves under there. Uh, anyway, so I'm taking up boxing and I've learned a, what, a lot about what, what, it looks, what it looks like to be actually in a boxing match. Uh, not that Kelly will ever let me do that, but if I was to go in a boxing match, I'm learning about what it would require. Now, one of the things I've heard is that guys who are having their first fight, their first amateur boxing match, because there's so much adrenaline in them, will jump out into that first round and go crazy for 60 seconds. They'll go so crazy that they'll forget to breathe and just punch, do everything they possibly can. And so what happens is in that last 60 seconds of the first round, they're completely shot. <laughs> they can hardly lift their arms and the other opponent, if they've paced themselves, will take advantage of that and possibly knock them out. See, the real battle for the boxer is not with the opponent in that first round. The real battle is with the boxer himself, within the boxer himself. To, the real battle is to calm down and to breathe. In the Bible this morning, we've read, uh, we're going to read about a real battle. Sorry, we're going to hear a battle story. And what we're going to see is that the real battle is not with weapons. The real battle is a battle to trust God. The real battle is a battle to trust God. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, uh, we're into talk two of what's going to be six talks on the book of Joshua. It's a part of the Bible's story of how a holy, perfect God is seeking to restore relationship with unholy, imperfect people, and he's seeking to do it in a holy space, a holy land. And so as we've gone through the story a couple of weeks before and we kind of recapped it again last week, God chooses Abraham's family to be his special holy people. And so from the beginning of Exodus, God brings, and through Exodus, God brings the family of Abraham out from slavery in Egypt. And in Joshua, he's bringing them into his promised land of Israel, this promised holy land. See, God's goal is to create a holy land with holy people and live in relationship with them. God's goal is to return us to the Garden of Eden in the beginning where it was all good. And he's going to do it in Joshua through holy war. That is the removal of anything from the land that rejects him, rebels against him, removal of sin from the land. God says to the new leader Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, we saw last week, I'm going to give you the land. All right, you're going to carry the promises of Abraham, the promises I made to Moses, the promises are yours as well. You carry those promises. I will be with you and I will fight for you. Your battle, he says to Joshua, is to trust me. Be strong and courageous. And so we read last week, by the end of chapter 4, God had parted the Red Sea so that they, no, the, the Jordan River, so that they'd walked through, onto, through on dry land into the promised land 
of Israel. And so by the time you get to the beginning of chapter five, you're thinking, now for the first battle. We, we think we're going to jump straight into a battle story where God uses these people to defeat his enemies. But what we see in chapter five is that instead of jumping straight into battle, God prepares them for the real battle. First, by reminding them who they are. First, by reminding them who they are. So pick it up with me in chapter 5, verse 2. It's going to be on your screens. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Okay, what's this about? Back in Genesis, Abraham gave circumcision. Sorry, God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign that he would be, he, he and his family were his special people, his special holy people. God says to Joshua here in the story, circumcise the people a second time. Now that sounds painful, doesn't it? Uh, it, Like it's actually, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it, it sounds painful. As you keep reading, you find out that although the generation that came out of Egypt had been circumcised, the children that were born to them while they were in the wilderness had not been. And so now they're the people that remain now. That generation died, that were in the wilderness actually died out. This new generation is going into the land. And so God prepares them for battle by reminding them who they are. He gets them to, to circumcise themselves so that they would know we are God's holy, special people. We have been marked out by God as holy. See, the battle for God's people was not just going to be about swords and stones and military plans. The real battle for God's people was about trusting who God said they were about trusting who God said they were. Second, they prepare for battle by remembering who God was, who God was. So verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Now, if you go back into the book of Exodus, uh, you see the first, what was called Passover. That was the meal that God's people ate, Abraham's family ate in Egypt on that night when the final plague came in Egypt. And so God instructed them to take the blood of the lamb and put it over the top of the lintel or the the door frame as a sign that they were God's people as a a way of preventing uh, death coming on their house in that night. See, Passover was a meal that reminded God's people who he was, that he was their saviour. Verse 11, and the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the lamb, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, we, the story in the book of Numbers is that God provided manna for them every day. Every day they woke up, and there was new manna, new manna, new manna. God provided for them. But now that they've come into the special land, the special land, promised land, it's producing its own food. And so God ceases the manna because the land is providing their food. See, God's people didn't prepare for battle by just training in combat. All right? They didn't put their battle gear on and, and try to make sure that they're really good with their swordsmanship. The real battle for God's people, the real preparation that needed to happen was they needed to learn, they need to remember again, they need to trust who God says they were, shown by circumcision. 
and they needed to remember and trust who God was, their saviour and their provider. For this was going to be God's battle, God's battle. Have a look with me at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, it's a good tip here. When you see a man with a sword, when you see a man with a sword, ask him whose side is he on? Whose side are you on? Verse 14, and he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, it's a little bit disconcerting, this answer. He says, no, meaning I'm not on your side, Joshua, and I'm not on the other side as well. I'm on God's side. I'm on God's side, and I've come to do battle. Now, lots of people have speculated as to who this figure is, this commander of the army of the Lord. Um, Some suggest it's the archangel Michael one of God's chief angels. Uh, others suggest it's like a, a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. So Jesus became man when he was a lot, when he first came into the world, but this is some pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Whoever it is, uh, the text is not clear, it's ambiguous. Whoever it is, this being has come to bring God's holy war. See, like we said in week one, God is on about creating a new Eden in this promised land of Israel. And he has invited Abraham's family to to be holy to him and to be a part of it. But for those who reject him in the land, then he has declared war. He's going to remove them and he's going to use his people to bring it about. So verse 14, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So you remember back in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses stood before the burning bush where God spoke to him and God said to him, take off your sandals for the ground on which you stand is holy. Joshua here has a Moses-like experience encountering the presence of God. And he recognises that this is a holy God and so he worships him. See, Joshua recognised that whoever this is represents God and his holiness. Joshua and the people are reminded the real battle is not about military might. <laughs> yes, they've come into the land. Yes, God said they're going to destroy their enemies. But it's not about military might. It's about trusting who God says they are. They are God's holy people. It's about trusting who God is. He is their saviour and provider. He is their warrior who will win the battle. Their job, their job, their fight in a sense, was to obey God's crazy battle plans. Their job was to obey God's crazy battle plans. So verse 1, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand and its kings and mighty men of valour. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city the seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, 
when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So God starts this instruction to Joshua with saying, the victory is assured. I've given them into your hands. He says, all you've got to do is walk around the city for six days, uh, uh, blowing trumpets, saying nothing, but blowing trumpets, six days, once a day, going around the city. Then on the seventh day, you walk around the city seven times, blowing trumpets. And then at the end of that, a big, long trumpet sound, and then you make a massive shout. And then all the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. Now, at this point, if you were an ancient, uh, an ancient military leader, this is the point at which you would laugh. This is a crazy, ridiculous plan. The plan was a joke. The walls of Jericho were believed to be nine metres tall and nine metres thick. And yet God says, trust me, trust me, obey my directions, obey my crazy battle plans and I will give you victory. And so the people do it. You have the soldiers at the front and the back and in the middle you actually have the priests holding the Ark of the Covenant which is the gold box which represents God's symbolic presence with his people, which represents God's throne amongst his people. And so for six days, once a day, they walk around, blowing trumpets, remaining silent, not shouting. Then verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, what's happening here? Throughout the Bible, uh, shouting is used both in battles. You shout uh, a cry in order to kind of intimidate the enemies, but it's also spoken about as something we do when we praise God, when we worship God. See, I, I don't, God is not saying shout at your enemies so they're so scared of you. God's people were called to shout in order to praise him for the victory that he had already assured them. Now, the other thing we notice here is that the repeat of the number seven, they go around the city seven times. Uh, they, they, they march for seven days. They go around the city seven times on the seventh day. What's the deal with the, with the number seven? Well, I think this is an echo of Genesis chapter one and two, an echo where it, back in Genesis one, God created the world, the original Eden, in seven days. And so here in Joshua, God is recreating Eden, isn't he? He's recreating Eden and he's recreating a holy place through holy war over seven days. Verse 17, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So the walls come tumbling down and God says, everything there must be destroyed. People, everything, except the gold and the silver. Now we began this series talking about the difficulty of understanding Joshua for the sense that it's an, God chooses, God calls his people to destroy other nations. Now, the word used here for devoted to, to the Lord for destruction, it's just one word in the Hebrew, and it's the word harem. 
H-E-R-E-M. Uh, it literally means devoted to destruction or, or devoted to the Lord for destruction. In, in this situation, God declares harem on Jericho. Now, that was something we said we, we think was hard to palate, hard to understand because it doesn't seem totally fair. There must have been innocent people there. And we said we needed to remember three things when considering this. Firstly, we needed to remember that God had been patient with these people, with Jericho and the people in Canaan for a very long time. So you read back in the book of Genesis, which is 500, 400, 500 years earlier, that these people in the land had practiced child sacrifice. They had done untold evil in this land. And so God had been patient for a very long time before he brings this destruction. Secondly, we need to remember that God is the only one who can declare harem. Uh, harem was not something that Joshua or any of God's people would just declare, hey, we're just going to wipe everyone out because we're the boss and we think they're baddies and we'll, do the, we'll get rid of them. Only God, who is perfect, who sees all, who is just, perfectly just, can declare harem. So that's the second thing. The third thing is the God who declares harem is the same God who endured harem for us on the cross. See, Jericho was devoted to destruction. And yet Jesus, as he went on to the cross, took upon himself our sin. He was devoted to destruction. So we said the God who declares Harem is the God who is Jesus, who can't be an evil God because he died on the cross to save us. He must be fair. He must be right. And so the trumpets blow. And the people shout in victory. Miraculously, the walls of Jericho, nine by nine, come tumbling down and the people go in and take the city. But not everyone is destroyed. So pick it up in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Now, back in chapter two, remember Rahab was a prostitute whom two spies came and were looked after by. So Rahab had heard about the God of Israel. She feared the God of Israel. She looked after the spies and sent them away. She saved them and enabled them to go free. And so here later on, they'd made an agreement there that they would look after her when they came to take the city. Here, her faith in the Lord is rewarded. God stays Rahab and her family. Now, this is another reminder that this God does not play favourites. Okay, it's not that the people in the land are the baddies and his people are the goodies. God is saving anyone who rightly responds to him, who rightly trusts him. Joshua is the story of God's holy war on sin. God is creating a holy land for his holy people to live in a relationship with him. He is creating a new garden of Eden. And he calls Joshua and his people to engage in the real battle, which is the battle of faith, to trust his promises, to trust his presence, to trust who he says they are, his holy people, to trust that he is their saviour, their provider, their warrior, and to be obedient to his word, to be obedient to instructions. God says, trust me, Joshua, it is my battle with sin. And as you keep reading the story of the Bible, you see that it's a battle 
that doesn't stop in Joshua. It's a battle that God keeps fighting right through the story of the Bible. And by the end of the Old Testament, you have this sense that it's a battle that's never going to be won. That human beings, regardless of how much God blesses his people and has this unique relationship with where he cares for them, that human beings are always going to choose instinctively to reject God. That sin is always going to be there. And so by the end of the Old Testament, you're asking how on earth is God going to fix this problem of sin? How is he going to ultimately fix, have, like, de- defeat sin? And then you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and see the ultimate fight against sin. See, our sin, like Jericho's, deserved destruction. And yet on the cross, Jesus was devoted to destruction for us to win the battle, to win the battle over sin so that Romans 8 can say to us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We are victors over sin. All of it can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. We are victors over death. Jesus rose from the dead three days later to give all who trust in him eternal life. We are victors over the world, Satan or the devil, and all evil. Jesus has crushed the power of Satan, his power over death, by coming back to life. He is a defeated foe. And anything that stands against Jesus is defeated. See, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are assured of the victory. Back then, Joshua was assured of victory. But how much more so us, who trust in Jesus, the great king who has come and extinguished the power of sin and death, Satan, the world, and evil. But although Jesus has completely won the battle, all right, Like Joshua, we have not fully enjoyed it in God's land. We're not in the new creation yet. We're in this now, but not yet. Now Jesus has won the battle, but not yet have we fully experienced it in the land, very like Joshua. So now like Joshua, the the, the Bible calls us to fight with faith. So 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight with faith against the evil both in our world and in us. The evil in our world, that is Satan and his demons, his influence on culture and institutions, evil, injustice, oppression. We fight with faith not only against the evil out there, but we fight with faith the evil in us. So 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, listen, which wage war against your soul. We are in a fight against the sin that we see, the remaining sin we see in our lives. We're in a fight against the evil of the world. We're a fight against the evil that is in us. And like Joshua, we fight by trusting God. We fight by trusting God who he says we are, that we are people not just marked with physical circumcision, but we are people who are marked with the Holy Spirit of God, that we are the ones who have inherited all the promises of God, 
that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that we are God's children empowered each and every day by his Holy Spirit. We fight by trusting who we are because of what God, who God says we are. Second, we, we trust by trusting who God is, just like Joshua, the one who came to be the Passover lamb, whose blood has forgiven us. He, God is our provider knowing what we need before we even ask him. We trust him. He is our warrior who has defeated our enemies and guaranteed us victory over sin and death. And the way we, we enjoy that victory, we live in that victory, the way we fight is firstly through prayer, don't we? When we're praying, we're engaging in that battle, that spiritual battle. We're praying that God's victory that is assured to us might be experienced in our lives and the lives of those around us. And so we pray for people to be saved, for God's victory to be seen in people's lives, that people would come to know Jesus. We pray for suffering to end. We pray for those going through suffering, that he would support them. We pray for sickness to be healed, that God's amazing kingdom of healing would break into our world now. We fight through prayer, but we fight also by taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it says in Ephesians 6. And we stand firm on the realities it presents. We hold on to the truth of what God says in the face of the lies of the world. We hold on to the truth that we always have hope because of Jesus. That regardless of how hopeless we might feel in any given day, we always have hope because of Jesus. We, we trust the truth that God can enable us to do things that we don't think we can do within ourselves. And so, for instance, if we're in relationships, we're really struggling to love people. If we're in relationships, we're struggling to forgive people. Then we trust by holding on to his word that he will give us the strength to be able to forgive, to be able to love. We trust that knowing God is more precious than anything our world can offer us. We fight the fight of faith. But, and we fight through but not just trusting his word in a, in, a, in a cognizant, but by obeying his word, by obeying even when his plans for our life sound as crazy as walking around a big wall for six days, seven days. Do you ever think that to yourself? Do you ever think to yourself, God's plan for my life just doesn't seem to be what I would have guessed? I would never have done it that way. And so at that point we say, well, maybe that's not what God wants. Maybe I'll just go off and do something else and do this. And... But when we are fighting to trust God, it means we will obey what he calls us to, obey his good way to live in his word, how he instructs us the best way to live and the things that he calls us to do, the places he calls us to be, whether we are where we want to be, or don't want to be. We fight the battle to say, I trust you, God, that you've put me in this time, in this body, to minister to these people. And then we march in the victory that is won for us. Imagine what it would have been like. Imagine what it would have been like for the people. Can they not hear me? Yeah. Okay. Imagine what it would have been like for the people to be walking around that wall thinking, what's going to do? What's God going to do? Is he really going to do it? Is he really going to do it? God's going to do it. 
God's going to do it. Friends, if you put your trust in Jesus, you're victorious over sin, death, and over this world. He is for you. He is with you. And so let's fight the good fight of the faith. Let's be obedient to every crazy plan he calls us to. Let's trust him. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your goodness to us, for your astounding goodness to us. And we ask that you would help us to recognise the victory we have in Jesus and walk with him daily, engaging the battle through prayer, through knowing your word, holding on to the promises of God, holding on to the truth in the face of the lies. Father, give us a sense that this battle is real, that you have won it, that we will live for you each and every day. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.